Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated Books on Cinema. Hello everybody, my name's John Bleasdale. I'm a writer and film critic, and today I'm going to be talking to Ian Nathan. Anybody who's interested in film books will know Ian Nathan's uh, work because he's he's written a whole bunch of them from Quentin Tarantino to Wes Anderson, Ridley Scott to the Coppolas. He's a, a fantastic read and, and his books are always incredibly incisive. Uh, today we're going to be mostly talking about Ridley Scott but he's got so many books and so many ideas that the conversation bounces around a fair bit and I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. Remember if you do enjoy listening to the episode to like, subscribe and spread the word as far and wide as is possible. You can can follow me on Twitter at Dr. John T, D-R-J-O-N-T-Y. But before you do any of that, please enjoy the conversation. I suppose my path is uh, somewhat more obvious in some ways. So I came out of university and was desperate to become a film journalist. I had no idea how to do it and sort of figured out a way. It, you know, people often ask, how did you get into film journalism? And I go, I don't quite remember, but you just sort of, you bluff your way in, to be honest. You, you, I looked at film magazines and magazines that were just beginning. This is the early 90s and made a, 
a savvy choice of thinking new magazines are more likely to want new writers than established magazines. And I got involved in a magazine called Vox, which was more music than it was uh, film, but I got involved in the film department. And it was part of the, I don't know if you remember it, but it's part of the NME sounds. It was sort of a monthly version of those magazines. Sure. And to cut a long, very long story short, a job came up at Empire while I was sort of just freelancing, getting established. It's just a staff writer job. And I went for it and got it. Um, you'd have to ask them why they picked me out of all the people at the time. Um, again, I think it was a lot of bluff on my behalf. I interviewed quite well and began this incredible journey on Empire. You know, I edited it. I was executive editor. I was there for 20 years. Uh, it was just fantastic. Um, I got to do incredible things and it was really hard work, daunting, and it pissed you off all the time and you fought battles. It it was just the full cornucopia of of life in in publishing. And it was always at the back of my head, almost like a bit of a dream, you know, would this move on to books at some point? Would there be a sort of transition from being a journalist and loving it? But, you know, you think long-term, you know, there's got to be some other other part of it. Part of it was a bit of ego, I think. I just wanted to have a book on a shelf. You know. Going to the bookshop and, and... Yeah, the thing I still do all the time and <laughs> go straight for the film shelves and look, look for my own my own thing and then panic if I'm not there and panic if I'm there. Do you shuffle them a little bit? Do you sort of put yours out front and move other other competing, competing titles to the back? Just a little bit, just a little bit. And you get that really, just occasionally you get that really bizarre moment where you walk in and somebody's holding your book and looking at it and you're trying not to stare at them. You're trying, to, you're trying to mind read what, what's going on in their heads, especially look at your book. You want to step up and go, that's me. But you know that would, you'd be a lunatic if you, if you did that. And so I have resisted that temptation. There's a Jonathan Coe novel. I think it might be Water Carver, where some an, a writer is on a train and a girl is reading his novel and he can't right. resist saying, okay, well, where are you? Yeah. And I wrote that. And, <laughs> and it turns out, I think, spoiler for Jonathan Coe novel, it turns out that she's entrapping him essentially. And like that yeah. was the easy the worm on the hook you know nobody reads your book <laughs> Would anyone read your book? i have got a similar memory to that i was traveling home on a, on a train one night and a new issue of empire was out and i saw the guy in front of me was reading the issue of empire and i saw he was reading my review of heat so he wasn't just reading empire he was reading my review and i didn't sort of stop and go that's me because again that is a lunatic thing to do but it was kind of intriguing because you just want to know what they're thinking they're just thinking, what, is he any good? That's all he's thinking. <laughs> right. I fancy that. You know, De Niro and Pacino, this sounds great. That's all that's going through his head. But in my head, it's like, I like the turn of phrase. You know, that's a very witty way of putting that. What an insightful thought. You know, it's all going through my head. He's just going, oh, five stars, heat. I may actually, this Friday night, you know, that'll be my choice or something on those lines. But it's a, it's a kind of weird experience. Anyway, I, you know, obviously I spent a lot of time at Empire and, you know, for whatever um, level, I, I gained something of reputation and the film books sort of came along while I was still there. Mm. And um, Aurum, who published, and I still get published with, who do, um, do a kind of really a nice line in film books in the sense that they're not a specific film publisher, but they're into it enough to be um, detailed and uh, not academic, but, you know, uh, his, you know, historical, but also commercially enough to know you've got to sell these things to, yeah. to a wide audience. It was quite a good yeah. college to be with. But they came to me and said, we've got an idea of writing a book about Alien. Um, we've got American side of our company who has gained access to the Fox archives and through a financial deal, basically. Right. And we want someone who knows about, about Alien. And I always was the kind of go-to guy on Empire for Ridley and Alien. And you know, I kind of stamped out that territory for myself, mainly because I was such an enthusiast. 
and the first two films especially, but I've sort of covered number three and I've covered number four and I've sort of stuck with it. And I didn't, you go through the rigmarole. You, they came and I said, I want to do this to the publisher. And I said, okay, put a proposal in. And so you had to do your chapter guide, you know, the deal and write a potential, just a, a sample chapter. That seemed to go pretty easily. I think they had an idea that, you know, from their side, someone from Empire writing this book was a good thing because Empire would then cover the book and yeah. you get, yeah, you know, there's bonuses from, from the publisher's side of it. And that became Alien Vault, which was it was a terrific adventure. It, it was it was a real kind of learning curve in the sense of, you know, on Empire, you, you write 2,000, 3,000 words tops. And suddenly I was doing a 35,000 word book over about, I don't know, five months, I think it was. And you suddenly sort of re, re, sort of relearn your trade in a way. You have to slow down and speed up at the same time. Mm. You have to go right into micro detail. But then there's this kind of thing... I'm sure all the, the writers you, you've kind of interviewed have said this, that you, there's a point where you have to kind of stop because there's this kind of black hole of detail you can fall down into and never stop. You just keep thinking, well, I've got to explain that. And I've got to explain that. How much have I got to tell of the history of Ian Holm? You know, have I got to go right back into his early career and explain how he ended up as Atch? And you have to go stop, stop, and, and you know, because your publisher's going, we can't fit this in. So you learned restraint as well as depth. You, you learn the kind of the different things you have to do. And as far as I know, I never got the full publishing figures on, on Alien Vault. It was a good, big success. And I think it continues to be. We did a new edition a couple of years ago with the anniversary. And that got the ball rolling. You know, it's like a biblical thing. One book begats the next book and you start. And But for the first few years, I was still at Empire. So I did Alien Vault and Terminator Vault while I was still at, uh, at Empire. But I had that by that point thinking, well, you know, this empire thing is going to come to an end. You know, I'm getting mm. too long in the tooth and you know, they want to do different things. And the arguments within the company, the publishing company about digital media and all these things were going on were just driving me insane. So I thought books, the oldest of old media might be the route, the route for me. And that turned out to be the case. And I'm very grateful for that. And I'm very grateful for Empire, really, to giving me the tools to do it and giving me the, the kind of platform. To, to launch into that side of it. And I imagine access was also a part of that, that you 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 must have sort of gained a network of contacts uh, just via the via the day job, so to speak. Yeah. It, it, you know, I wouldn't say I have Ridley's home phone number. That, that would be an exaggeration. But yes, it, certainly if you put in your request note, you send through and say, I am blah, 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 Empire Magazine. This is my background. That really helps you over the first few hurdles. They'll sure. listen to you. I mean, like everything in, in, in this world, you know, I've produced award ceremonies, I've written books, and I've worked for Empire at high level and all these things. It's still a battle. Whatever it is, it's still a battle to get the thing you want. But yes, you're right. You know, it, it was help. It really helped. That's sort of a, my credentials. What was it like going into those archives? And what was this? Was it, I mean, I was talking to Paul Cronin, uh, yeah. and he was telling me that like he actually prefers going into he gets the same feeling of discovery going into an archive that i i get going to a film festival and seeing you know a <laughs> roster of a program of new films from fresh you know fresh perspectives i think it it really helps if you love the films and the universe of the films sometimes it can become a bit academic yeah, when I, I've done full director stories, you know, inevitably you like some films more than others in their career. So it's great, you know, on Coppola, it's great when you're doing Apocalypse Now. It's just fascinating. But when you come to uh, Peggy Sue Got Married, and I actually quite like Peggy Sue Got Married, but... I can think of worse yeah, Coppola films. Jack. Jack. Yeah, Jack. <laughs> the, the, the nadir one everyone brings up. You know, you, you kind of like have to... Come, and in some ways it's quite interesting because you're looking for a route into Jack to, to explain it. So it becomes a bit more academic. But you're absolutely right. There's, there's something wonderful about about seeing the paperwork 
and seeing the old pictures. In some ways, the old pictures are great, but they're they're kind of a bit more. You know, they're going to illustrate the book, and that's fine. I just love seeing call sheets. You know, mm-hmm. I did the book about Lord of the Rings, and a lot of that came through. Uh, my contact to Empire and my relationship with Peter Jackson. And that was all fantastic. And I went out to New Zealand many times and I, and he was brilliant. He said, well, look, here's my archive and they've got it all digitized. It's all very modern there. And he gave me access to every single call sheet, you know, of this enormous, enormous production. And they were just wonderful documents and really informative, you know, day 78, you know, wherever the location was, there was, you got the kind of the props required and what was being shot, scene 33C, Frodo does this to Sam and whatever it is. But then you can read down, there's always notes at the bottom from the producer. Please, if you have a parking space, do not occupy anybody else's parking space. (laughs) (laughs) Who left their Wellington boots on set last week? And when they come and claim them from the office, these lovely kind of really humanizing notes that bring the whole thing down to a rather sort of humble, but rather beautiful level. And you get those in every film. Alien has these kind of notes about people turning up on time and and, and sort of obeying things. And then there's doing Terminator. There's these wonderful handwritten Cameron notes we, we looked at. And they were just sort of, I mean, he puts everything down. He's got this amazing mind where he just has to, you know, get everything on paper and his ideas because there's so many. It's just the casting ideas written in, in sort of his own handwriting. Bruce Springsteen for Kyle Reese. You know, and Sting. You know, they think they're kind of, Bruce you know, Springsteen? The, I've, I've, they, I've, they, yeah. They were for Bruce Springsteen for Kyle Reese. Well, it was still O.J. Simpson to play the Terminator, which right. was a Hendale. Because he, you know, you look at the timings, you know, O.J. Simpson was huge in 1982 when they were putting the film together. And there's been yeah. this Hertz advert that was the biggest thing on American TV, which he runs through an airport, leaps over it. And he was suddenly this, about to become a movie star. Of course, you know, subsequent history tells you he's very different, but he was, you know, number one choice. And they were going through all these ideas for Kyle Reese to be a counter to O.J. Simpson. So they had um, Christopher Reeve was a really number one choice, uh, but he was was too expensive right he was one of the biggest stars of, of, of the time and it, you know and eventually it all comes down and, and someone this is all covered a bit of myth but someone somewhere suggests schwarzenegger as kyle reese you know as the story goes and cameron's just not having any of it he's just like i'm not having Conan the barbarian in my film this is absurd and they have this famous lunch and cameron sits there and looks at him and and, and of course schwarzenegger just starts talking about the terminator he's read the script very disciplined um Schwarzenegger. He just starts going, well, you know, if you're going to do the Terminator, he's got to be able to fire without blinking. He's got to be able to assemble the rifle without looking at all these kind of things. Cameras are sitting there looking at it, sketching something on a, on a napkin and just goes, no, you've got to play the Terminator. Schwarzenegger's like, aren't I meant to be the hero guy? Yeah. And all those other ideas sort of get thrown out the window as soon as Schwarzenegger becomes the deal. At that point, they can't afford anyone. So they have to go for Michael Bean and Linda Hamilton and you know all their other ideas. Like Rosanna Arquette was very close to being Sarah Connor. I, anyway, the, the point was is these lovely sort of almost like diary entries from Cameron just you can see his thought process and Hemdale's thought process. It's almost like you're looking into his mind. You know, it's almost yeah. like you're, you're seeing a movie being thought into existence, you know? Yeah, you are. And also, again, it's, it's, it's quite humble or humbling. You, you see big things, you know, that are technically very difficult, just being sketched out in handwriting. You know, the order of sequences in an edit suite. It's just some guy on a full scap, you know, with writing in pen. It's like the Beatles doing a song list on the back of an envelope yeah. for a gig, you know, for, for the rooftop gig in Abbey Road. It's like, okay, we'll start with, you know, we're not yeah. doing Octopus Garden, Ringo, <laughs> shut up. <laughs> uh, it's, it's great. And it also, as I say, it humanises it a bit. And you think actually these guys, you know, they're trying to figure it out and they're figuring it out in the 
way we all do. We did just writing on a notepad and sort of going through things. And from there, obviously, they expand to these famous films. But uh, that I love. When we receive these movies, we receive them as sort of fait accompli. They're done. They're, you know, and and you, you have this almost in your head, this sort of, um, it's like a cognitive illusion that it could not have been any other way. This was inevitable. But, but of course, yeah. you know, who else is Terminator except Arnold Schwarzenegger? So when you look back and you see how conditional and how there are these alternative universes with Bruce Springsteen and Christopher Reeve and OJ Simpson and, you know, yeah. it, that's... I love that stuff, huh? I'm kind of obsessed with it, kind of alternative I was reading um, Stephen Back's book on Marlena Dietrich, and it's a, it's a wonderful, really detailed book. And then it comes across at one point where she contemplated paying Mary Poppins. But long before Julie Andrews, it came across her path that Marlena Dietrich could have been Mary Poppins, you know, because they were wow. big books. Yeah. And she then she said she didn't think it was her, or the Asian didn't think it was her. It got passed on. But I thought there's this universe somewhere where Marlene Dietrich is Mary Poppins, and what would that be like? She'd be quite scary, I think. And there's this, you know, in Blade Runner, you know, Scorsese looked at that book long before Ridley did it. So there's a universe where Martin Scorsese makes a version of Blade Runner. It wouldn't be called Blade Runner, but you know, it's I love those little sort of. Your path, you know, timeline sort of switches, forks in the path that could have given you a different film entirely. Scorsese has never done a science fiction film, has he? I'm just trying to think, but I don't think he's ever no, done a... as a genre. He's never touched on it. So even that would be weird, yeah. just that he would, a little bit like Ridley Scott, sort of introduce himself to the world as a genre filmmaker rather than a more sort of poetry of the streets, autobiographical, New York-based filmmaker. Yeah, and you can imagine... Scorsese would have made it like Mean Streets. You can imagine it be very sure. much like a, a New York noir, which you know, in many ways Blade Runner is like. You know, then maybe there wouldn't be that much difference. But uh, it's interesting. You know, he, he he did look at that, thought about it. But again, early on in his career, so maybe he hadn't quite established what the, the Scorsese mood was going to be for the rest of, the, of his time. It's just interesting in the book. That would have been sort of a boxcar birther period. So, yeah, it could yeah. have been a Coleman-esque science fiction rather than... Yeah, rather than, you know... As if he did it now, and it would be two hundred and fifty million dollars, and everyone would be de-aged, and it'll be all sorts of, of bells and whistles. But uh... interesting in the relationship with Ridley Scott as well, yeah. no, not in terms of necessarily your personal relationship, but the relationship in terms of the films. Uh, you said you you sort of carved out a, a piece of a corner of expertise at Empire with with Ridley Scott. What was was that one of your earliest sort of name directors that you admired, or what was? How did you how did you get into him? Yeah, he was. Um, my, my relationship with, with Ridley Scott actually starts with Alien and starts uh, when I was quite young and my mum going off to see Alien, which I knew was a science fiction film. And I, like you know, kids of, of that age, you know, I'd, I'd seen Star Wars and I just want, yeah, you know, every science fiction belonged to me. And it was just ridiculous to me that I, my mother could go and see a science fiction film and I couldn't because I was too young. So I was really infuriated by that. And I remember very clearly, I remember the next day, and I'd say, well, what was it like? You know, and she told me it was so good, it, it was hysterical, and the audience were reacting hysterically. And I was very confused by that idea. I thought, why is it funny? You know, mm. she didn't mean funny; she meant hysteria. She had these films, and she didn't really want to explain to me quite why. But these images in my head, I, I, I understand. But that has stuck with me so strongly. And when the time you get to, I don't know when I saw it on on VHS. Uh, for the first time, probably bunking off school one afternoon or, or something. You know, I think we watched The Thing, an alien one afternoon, one of the you know, most important afternoons of my life, really. <laughs> yeah. I totally kind of got what was, she was saying. And I liked, I remember liking Alien more than I liked The Thing. 
even though I loved the thing, don't get me wrong. It was the atmosphere. You know, I loved the ingredients, of course, and then the tension, but I adored the way it felt and looked very deeply. And then obviously I saw Blade Runner at the cinema, but still maybe a bit young. And again, I wanted to see Han Solo in the new science fiction film with the Han Solo guy in it. And saw this sort of existential film noir that I didn't really understand, but came out haunted by it. And then I, you know, I've revisited so many times, I, you know, I, I can't count. But I began a relationship with the style that Ridley Scott had, even though I wasn't quite aware of that relationship yet. And Ridley Scott talked about the fact that when he saw Citizen Kane, he, that was the first time he became aware a director was at work that choices were being made, that a scene looked the way it did and felt the way it did, more importantly, because someone has come into this with an idea, where you put your cameras and how it looks, and you've got a team involved to, to bring that off. And I think that's what I thought or was experiencing with, with the early Ridley Scott film, that someone was making this like it was for a reason, even though I wasn't quite sure what reason that was at first. But I'm not 100% sure what reason to this day what, but, you know, that's the joy of Blade Runner is you can't quite fix what, what really Scott was intending to do. It's got its elusive quality about it. And I think that, if anything, sets me on the path that's of, of my whole career in a way, trying to interpret those things and, and put them down on page. I feel I have a very similar... I was uh, talking to uh, uh, Christina Brillo gerling uh, yesterday. We were having a, a, a conversation about um, on, a, on a podcast, and I, I sort of admitted to her that if, if somebody asked me, you know, who, who was your first sort of director-director, I would always say, oh, it was Orson Welles or Kubrick or someone like that. But, but really, it was Ridley Scott. It was really, yeah. it was uh, my image of him as a director. When we were kids and we wanted to, we were very into films and we wanted to sort of, it was always things like running down corridors. That was the sort of like a key yeah. visual element. Yeah, yeah. It was a, a, strobing lights and corridors and that. And that's all... You know, it's Alien and Blade Runner. Those films sort of impressed on me that sort of visual language. So weirdly, for me, weirdly, Scott is is similar to you. It's that it's yeah. that guy who who I suddenly realised, oh, that's a director. How did you feel sort of watching his career develop? Because after those two, you know, two Citizen Kanes of science fiction, yeah, the only way was down, really. But I suppose so. I mean, down and up and down and up and yeah. down and up. Yeah. It was kind of like that, and maybe he hasn't you know, reach those particular heights again. Although, you know, he would he would look at things very differently and he, and he he's not a guy who looks back particularly readily. He's not a guy for regrets. You know, he he likes the films in the past, but he's very much keep going, keep going. I mean, he's 83 now and he's got two films coming out and it's phenomenal you know, in terms of his productivity. It was weird. You know, you get into a little bit and uh, yeah, certainly when you're young and into films, where it's almost a bit like supporting a football team, that you're, you're a Ridley guy and you're on Ridley's team and in some ways you overlook things and you're forever born along by hope. You know, I like Legend. Uh, it, it's, it's a flawed film and a very troubled film in terms of its production. But visually, I think year by year, you look at it and think, actually, that's sumptuous. You know, that, that in terms of, you know, he wasn't using CGI or any of these tools. And the physicality of that world is marvellous. It's a fairy tale. And it's not a fantasy film. It's a fairy tale. Uh, he's very clear about that. And I've, you know, and I've always, there's a phrase in an empire that, you know, you'd go to away games for certain directors. You know, that was your, <laughs> you know, I go away games for Ridley. You know, I'm committed. Yeah, I, I've struggled with certain films uh, and I've loved Others. I, I love 1492. You, you were tweeting about it the other day, and I, I have a great love of 1492. I think it's one of his most beautiful films. I know it's narratively, certainly by the third act, it feels jagged and things aren't quite 
organized properly. And he would say there is a longer version of it that is much more coherent, but probably was unreleasable at that length. But I just think the texture of that film is, is astonishing. And the idea of the chaos of history, rather than some kind of moral stance on history, you know, it is this, and this is good, and this is bad. This is just, history is a kind of mess that just kind of unfolds and spills over with these pioneers getting things right and getting things wrong and, and all the things, you know, that came with colonialism. And he did, he did bring dark times to the world in many ways, Columbus, but he also shaped the way the modern world is and was an extraordinary character. And I love the fact that really Scott is obsessed with that. And so I've always enjoyed his historical epics. I think no one has brought the past to life as well as Ridley Scott on the screen. You can argue the merits of individual stories and plots and narratives, you know, Kingdom of Heaven, you know, certainly the, the theatrical cut gets a bit caught up. And I'm not sure Orlando Bloom is the best piece of casting. But in terms of, I think it's a voice thing with him. I always say, oh, he's got a bit of a, what I call a sixth form voice. It sounds a bit like a school prefect. It's something I've talked about in the past is that I think voices are so important to film. And people don't think about them very much. And great actors have to have great voices, whatever things. They can be John Candy, who has a great voice. Or they can be Richard Burton, who has obviously an incredible voice. Yeah. Few men even considered the possibility of life on other planets. <laughs> Sorry. That's my, yeah, that's that's my... I grew up on that album as well. You know, um... A boy stands Ooh, in a field. I, <laughs> I don't think Richard Byrne did the Ulas. <laughs> I'd love to if he did do the Ulas. That was Phil Lyman, I think. I think. But yeah, I think you know, Orlando Bloom's main problem is I think he's just got this voice that never convinces you, you know, arise the night and all that. You think, this is the big moment. And Yeah, that's a really, really good point. I think you've absolutely put the finger on, your finger yeah. on it there because he he is, I watch Kingdom of Heaven with a sense of almost traumatic loss, but because it's such a, everything around him is yeah. so good. And I'm just thinking, God, you, you could put almost any of the other actors in his role and you would immediately have like a classic movie. You know, you could put David Thewlis playing yeah. his role or Liam Neeson. If you imagine if Liam Neeson oh, yeah. was, was that, if they, you know, of, they did some Scorsese de-aging. And... Liam Neeson's finest moment is Kingdom of Heaven. He's just magnificent. It's a small role, but he's that, you know, that battle scene at the beginning when the knights are taken out, he's, he's fabulous in his own right. Nikolai Costa-Waldo is in there and all these fantastic people and all had a bloke. But Neeson is just, there's a wink in that sequence. When the guys are, they know they're surrounded and Neeson just turns around and winks at him it must have been an improv on set yeah and it's so good and you think oh yeah yeah this guy feels medieval and modern at the same time you just want to, have to see his story i just wanted a dirty dozen with those knights moving through the crusades and i'm like i'm here yeah this is this is the movie i know he wanted to tell this kind of historical thing about progress and, and western east which is his big subject really but neeson just fabulous in that film i'm gonna i'm gonna come back to yeah. legend in a second but um i'd want uh I'd, i also want to sort of pause a second on 1492 because i do think it is a really underrated movie and i agree there are problems with the with the length which you were you you know they, they sh it, sh it actually should be a longer movie uh, you know i mean he sort of short short changes that was one of those few movies that i went to see at the cinema and then i went to see the same week and it must have been the same week because i don't think they held it over for two weeks yeah, yeah. Uh, just because i was kind of just so puzzled by it. It, it it you know blew me away but at the same time it was this puzzling movie that i couldn't quite get a handle on that's the other thing i would go with with ridley scott is 
Blade Runner introduced me to Phil, Philip K. Dick and it introduced me to Vangelis. And yeah. sort of 1492 brings Vangelis back as well. So there's just this sort of real wealth. One other thing, and this is this is one of those annoying more a comment than the question sort of <laughs> <laughs> interventions. But um, uh, I think that uh, 1492 is gives us much more of an indication of what a Ridley Scott horror film would look like than Hannibal, you know? Yes. Yeah. Oh, that's a good, yeah, yeah. It's a really good point. Yeah. There's a really interesting, that first sort of where they go to the village and the stuff hanging down, and it's almost like Texas yeah. Chainsaw Massacre. It's incredible, the, the burning of the stake yeah. at the beginning of the film, the child watches in, in the chaos, and they're all cheering on, and they're sort of throttling people, and it's so vivid and so shocking. And he wants to say progress isn't all what it's stacked up to be. You know, this is the... The first world in in, you know, in terms of 1492, and look at it. It's it's barbaric. You know, religion is barbaric. He's saying, but he's saying civilization is rough edged. He's saying progress is a hard thing. You know, and it's not clean. We always look at you know, oh, the inspiration for history and all those things. And he's saying, no, look at it. It's mean and horrible. And well, he brings up slavery. He you know he has you know the, oh the city was designed by Leonardo da Vinci, but you also you, slaves built it. Redis guys mentioned that that there is a four-hour cut that exists and HBO I think have it. Now this doesn't mean say HBO are planning to put it on a channel at some point. He just said they have it. And he said there was a three-hour version he really should have put out and he was talked into cutting it because it was so you know that point long. And I think it was still at that stage, you know, we hadn't had Titanic and we hadn't had all the Lord of the Rings films and those things that proved that long films could do very well at the box office. There was always that concern about how many showings a day and all those things. So he was talked into cutting into 1492. And I think you're right, the end suffers more than anything. It doesn't quite pan out as a story. But he says that there is this four hour version uh, that probably might need tidying up. Uh, you know, need to go look at it and maybe we've got enough score. But I would really love to see that. You know, HBO put it out or a criteria just go with, you know, like a mini series almost version mm. of um, 1492 and get all the textures and maybe set, make more sense of the endings. You know, the, the new world he tries to build that collapses and all that stuff. That's very hurried in the cut that we saw. But uh, there's some, there must be a lot more to that. There's something so surreal about that storm and the and and I just have a real nostalgia for stuff that is done in camera. So you know, it's this is pre CGI and you've got massive ships and massive crowds and all of that stuff just feels where you compare it to something like, I don't know, Martin Scorsese's Silence, where it has a, a medieval sort of bit of Japan, like a crowd scene, and it's just so obviously digital that it just takes you out of the movie, you know? Yeah. I mean, the, the scene where the, the, the banks of cloud pull back and he sees land, you know, and he sees the new world. And of course, they had to do that physically. They had to generate enough dry ice, huge amounts of dry ice, just to fill the beach or fill, you know, the, the shot of the beach. They had these giant wind machines to blow it all away. So, you know, we see he wanted a curtain being pulled back and, you know, Columbus sees, you know, paradise and that's what Ridley wanted and they worked out how to do it it's a fantastic shot I think a good point you make in the book the the retrospective and this is I I was yeah. um rereading the book for the for the purposes of this this podcast and it made me go back and and watch legend uh which I hadn't seen since I was you know 14 15 I guess yeah. And that is a that you can almost tell the point in the film where the where the studio burnt down. <laughs> There's almost a bit where you go, all right, it's here. This is where yeah. from this point on they're they're trying yeah, to the forest disappears, doesn't it? There's no more the Sylvian forest is all gone because yeah. it's all burnt. 
but I I agree with you. That's a really yeah. um, that's a really interesting film. I mean, I would put it much more in the company of Company of Wolves, uh, yes. which I think you you do as well. So I shouldn't claim that as my point. Then I don't know what was a, a similar sort of I don't know like Krull or or one of those yeah. sort of fan, more. It was fantasy. the era of of the kind of Muppety fantasy films, Labyrinth and Dark Crystal. And that was the kind of the fantasy market at the time, and Kroll, as you mentioned it. But I don't think Ridley ever saw that as even a comparison. He come, he'd come out of three films you know, that ultimately are, are all kind of fairy tales, Alien, Blade Runner, and Legend. Uh, if you think about them, very you know haunted house, the story of, of fairies, really, and their brief existence, and this kind of weird fairy tale city of Blade Runner into the literal fairy tale of, of legend. You know, I think he, he, he imagined a kind of trilogy, you know, and he was in, hugely influenced by Jean Cocteau. And yeah, the thing with Ridley, you always fall back on is that he went to art school and you know, he was taught by Francis Bacon when he turned up, Francis Bacon, that is, you know, to do his <laughs> lectures. And he had a path where he could have been a professional painter. He could have gone down that, done oils, and and in a way he did become a professional painter. You know, that stayed with him as he went off into film and came captivated by the moving image. He still is the professional painter, and that's mm. what legend is. It's it's beautifully painted. It's, you know, ornate. And it captures the kind of the, the very... Freudian elements of, of fairy tales, the idea of sexuality, uh, you know, the evil is just a giant phallic guy, isn't it really? He's the alien all over again. You know, he, yeah. he's, and then Scott said this, he said, I want to see him healthy. I want mm. this, you know, this character to be alive, you know, the physique, you know, he's very male, great horns with his helmet. You know, it's not subtle, really. No. You know, he's a horny devil and <laughs> the girl is tempted. You know, that's that's kind of, that's fairy tale stuff. That's, you know, as you said, Company of Wolves. It's the, the puberty analogy. And Tom Cruise, you know, has to come in. And I quite like Tom Cruise in it because he's got that weird thing that Tom Cruise has in a lot of his performances where he's just a bit like an animal. He's just weird. He seems to sniff the air. It's very odd, his mannerisms in it. And he is kind of a creature of the woods. He's not quite sort of civilized. That's yeah. kind of a good role for Cruz when you think about it. That jumpiness, you know, he has. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And he's so, he's one of our most, I don't think he's one of our best actors by a long shot, but he's one of our sort of most sincere actors. You can almost feel his sincerity of that he's, he's not, he's not camp. He's not, no. you know, he, that's why Mission Impossible has such a different tone to James Bond. Is he's he's never winking. He's never. Oh, why yeah. does this always happen to me? He never has that. Yeah, it's yeah, like, yeah. of course, this happens to me. It's my job, you know. I'm, <laughs> so there's this sincerity. Uh, Ida's wife shut has this real. You can see him trying in that film so hard that it's almost poignant. The, the the the. I think he thinks he's in a different film to the one he thinks he's in. You know. Yeah. Going back a little bit to your point about the painter and the art, that that runs all the way through his career because, of course, when he has Gladiator, he's gifted a painting to sort of persuade him or yeah. print to persuade him Hannibal I think the sequences in Florence are are luscious yeah. because he loves being in the capital of the Renaissance art movement. I think he is a bit undervalued because whenever people talk about Ridley Scott as being this visual artist, they always refer to the commercials rather than to the art school background. But I always feel that he's a bit like Sergio Leone. I mean, Leone used to used to use paintings a lot for lighting guides, you know, he'd use Goya to work out how to light, light a yeah. scene. And I, th I think there's the same eye 
that, that, that Ridley has, really. God damn it. I keep making these comments rather than absolutely. questions. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, it's, it's great. I mean, you're, you're absolutely spot on. And and he would agree with you and probably start launch on a whole thing of the, the things that have stimulated him. I mean, Alien, you know, the, the coming of Alien, the, the way I think it became a film was the moment when Dan O'Bannon sits beside him and opens the Necronomicon, points to Giga's painting. And Scott, that's what Scott needs. He says, I'm a visualist. And what he means is that he that's an input and an output. You know, he, he needs visuals to come in and then they, they go out. And he studied art history and he wanted to be um, a production designer when he joined the BBC. You know, he, he, in terms of that frame is so vitally important to him. And he saw Giga's painting and he said, you know, it's a very funny story. Dan O'Bannon said, you know, I've already suggested this and Fox have gone mad and fired the guy. And Scott was going, it's this or I go, basically. He was so sure as soon as he saw it, and he flew to Zurich and found Giga and said, come back to LA. I'm sure it you know, got much more complicated than that, but that's going to be the crux of what happened. And that's it. I mean, that's the way Scott, I think, literally functions. Um, as you say, with Gladiator, it was the painting that won him over. He just saw it and he goes on like that and he's very stimulated by physical art i think gucci will be interesting because i think gucci will be the film that more than any marries all the sides of scott together the art history the visualist the historian the, the movie maker in the sense of i think it will play to a classic tradition of european thrillers but also the world of advertising and glamour and we should never discount you know, really Scott Associates and his advertising background. Because he said there were 30 seconds of perfection or two minutes of perfection. That's what you built. And all of what any advert, you know, advert is trying to do is get someone to buy something. So it's, it's born along on the idea of desire. You have to make these images desirable on some level to play to the audience. They will on a on a primal level, on a level of you need this, you want this. That's, you know, seduction is what's going on. And I think that's what he's taken into his films, that he seduces us. He makes a film about a dystopian city, you know, the ruined future. And we just want to live there. <laughs> we look at it and think, this place is astonishing. We want to go there. You know, it's, it's so beautiful and you're so haunted and touched by it. And it's a bit like his advertising. And I mean that in a positive sense. You know, he, he's not shallow because of that. It's a really important part, I think, his makeup. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It's almost like it create it helps him create his craft as well. Helps him sort of work out what his palette is going to be, what he can then use in a broader sense. Well, going going on to sort of the later part of his career, obviously he goes yeah. back to Alien, and you'd covered the Alien sequels. Where, where do you sort of with the Alien sequels? Is there is there a point where you you were sort of fed up with having to cover them <laughs> because of, the, of diminishing returns? Or I mean, I really like Alien Three, which again is one of those problematic movies which starts. Yeah so well and you know the exit of Charles Dance is kind of the moment where it all seems to fall to pieces yeah it's it's, it's yeah again more trouble than any troubled production it's, it's, a, it's a nightmare it's, it, was, it was a nightmare in terms of getting a script to work beforehand I think there's a sort of sense that, that they just began because they had to begin and Hill and Guyler who didn't care as much as maybe they could have done on that film with churning this thing out and trying to get it to work and, and poor old Finch is caught in the crossfire but I think I, I presume you've watched the cut on on, on DVD it's, it's the, uh, the the assembly cut where it's called because it's not a director's cut because Fincher won't even talk about it let alone go back and look at it but that's a really interesting version of Alien 3 that makes a lot more sense of it, it tells the McGann story and, and I love that idea that Fincher kind of wanted to do a sequel to the first film not the second film in a way what Alien 3 is it's an alternative version of Aliens so it could have gone this way where it's much more austere it's almost like a, a Dickensian story you know, the, the workplace horror and it's got that kind of rather fantastic sort of clammy look 
to it. I think Sigourney Weaver's great in it. I think after a while, technically getting used to, but the Britishness of it comes through after a while. You go, okay. And you're right. This just, if you watch the original version, I remember because um, I was obsessed with the first two Alien films. And so I was so, you know, into Alien 3. And of course, at that point, there was no internet and there was no kind of, you know, rumor mill or, or hype machine. What we got was posters and, and occasional things like Starlog. And we had a, a program, basically just a, a string of trailers that played late on Channel 4, I think it was, on a Friday night, movies, something and something, or whatever it was called. And I would tape it every, avidly every Friday. And I remember the first time they had the Alien 3 trailer on it. And it was actually a pretty good trailer. And I said, like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I watched that trailer ad infinitum so keyed up for that film and again it's a bit like football i, I kind of i forgave it a lot just because it existed i kind of went in and yeah you know, i came and i was disappointed i was really disappointed but i was trying to make sense of it in my head and i was trying to go well yeah what about that but it's a film that has stuck with me and i've gone back to and i, I like the the assembly cut even though it's not really complete and i and I, I think it's a lot going on there that's really interesting Alien Resurrection. Well, there's some nice, there's some nice things in it, you know, and good ideas. And again, Weaver is fantastic. You know, she gets what that film needs entirely. It just, just where it goes is just so bonkers that you know, I, you know it's kind of kills off the whole mood entirely. Um, the, the film, yeah, that I struggled with, I think more than those, because in a way they were sort of classic sequel, diminishing returns. Was Prometheus. You know, again, it was really going back to the alien universe and there was the things he talked about, the origins of the creature, which I was I was nervous about because in a way you want to, I don't like prequels very much as an idea because you, they, they kill mystery. And mystery is a lovely quality. And in Alien, you know, the beauty was you never knew where this creature came from. You just imagined it and thought about this spaceship and the derelicts and all that. What is out there in the universe? This is incredible and, and savage. And you think, wow, and that's a great way to start a film. I don't want to know the origins. And I really don't want to know now I've found them out. <laughs> and Prometheus, that worried me. But I was encouraged because it was Ridley and there was so much hype around there. And it built up into this big thing. But that, in a way, was a bigger disappointment as a film to me than perhaps uh, even Alien Resurrection. It was it, it was just a fumbled film to me because you can see the bones of the Alien prequel it was going to be sort of still poking through the surface. You know, the ampules that, that clearly were eggs at some point in, in some script version. And, you know, there's a lovely cleanness to the biology of the first two films. The life cycle makes sense. You can see the, you know, the, the, the real world stuff in it. And the life cycle stuff in Prometheus makes no sense to me at all. I, I've, I've seen it a few times and it's like, what's going on here? This is stuff written over stuff, written over stuff. And I understand Ridley, you know, he's such a certain guy in many ways. And he's, you meet him and he's so sure of his, his opinions and thoughts about film. Yet you look at certain films and you see doubt that's coming to his head about the direction. And there was a serious, you know, doubt that came into his head with that process where he went, I can't do another alien film. I've got to disguise this film as something else. I'll do this kind of ersatz 2001 rather morbid thing that still is kind of an alien film somewhere underneath the surface. Yeah, I just couldn't get the human element of that film. I, I didn't think I didn't think uh, Numi Rapace really was was no. compelling in any way. And I thought I think that thing of the female, the sort of the last girl, has become something of a cliche as well. And and you know it could could have been problematized. Um, I mean, because the original, the idea of the original one was it's yeah. such a surprise that Scotty Weaver is going to be the yeah. one that, that that saves the day to some degree and, and survives. And I and I also couldn't get that 
you know, you had characters who were essentially scientists, but they, for some, for no narrative reason, but for a sort of generic reason, they were behaving as if they were Marines or, and, or yeah. sort of the engine, the, the sort of space truckers of the first film where they're, you know, I'm a geologist, I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Shut up, you know? And it was just like, uh, uh, why are you behaving like this? Except for the old horror movie sort of narrative convenience thing of I threw away the map. I didn't want the you know, yeah. you, you know, doing dumb stuff to get you yourself into some sort of jeopardy. I was yeah, I was. I think I I went on a similar journey of being extremely anticipating it with, with uh, a lot of pleasure and then watching it and thinking, oh my, oh gosh, oh dear, yeah. <laughs> don't run in zigzags, don't run in a straight oh, line. All that, all, <laughs> yeah. all that stuff. And this is a film site. You actually look at it. You know, there's no monster in it. They keep. I mean, things sort of happen. Creatures sort of turn up, but there's no real monster. It's, it's good. the monster's dead. They've gone to a grave site, and they've got to start inventing a monster out of nothing. And it's. I think. Yeah. You know, in Ridley's head, maybe it's a bit Forbidden Planet, and it's a bit all those things. And he's determined to do this origin story. But you're last night, you know, clean narrative ideas. You know, in the end, Alien is is a monster movie. It's, a, it's probably maybe the best monster movie. It's just, a, you know, because it's so primal and interesting and all the kind of mythological things to sort of echo out from the central idea that it's a monster movie is stowed away on this ship. He's picking off the crew one by one. Will they live? And it's, you know, it's down at Banner's B movie. That's what its core mm, principles are. Mm, yeah. And you bring an artist like Scott on board and great things happen. And in a way, Prometheus sort of worked in the opposite direction. You know, it got starts off too complicated and never found its purity and, and it just became more rambly and then alien covenant may was a bad reaction to prometheus mm. he never got these ideas under control he became fascinated with david more than he was with the alien that became an afterthought so it's neither one thing or the other and there are again visually both films have wonderful things in them but they don't satisfy i don't know why i mean this prequel element sort of obsessed him yeah it's, i don't know if it's a sort of sense of ownership or something he wants to sort of bring it back and and reclaim it and if i guess he felt if he was going to do a, another sequel. He would have to, in some way, recognise aliens and recognise... Which he never did. No, no, absolutely not. It's funny, I, I went on the set of um, um, Alien Covenant, and it's fantastic. And, yeah, it's the only uh, actually Ridley Scott set I've been on. And it was... All right. So that was a privilege, and I, you know, talking to him and, and doing the whole thing with the guided tour. And you end up in the creature shop, which is brilliant, because you get to prod the aliens and do all the things that you want to do. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's clammy. Take some and, photographs, and I guy, hope. Well, you can't. No, it's oh, one thing course, you can't do. God okay, damn it. You can't bring out your camera. They're all like, no. But there were funny guys, and they, you know, and I was chatting to the, the creature makers and talking to the whole thing about their love of Giga and you know, how they watched the first film. And of course, I'd written the book by then, and some of them had read my book, which is also, you know, a wonderful thing. I actually saw copies on the set. That, if anything does for your ego well, it was that. You're like, oh, my book's being used as, <laughs> as a tool for Alien Covenant. <laughs> Um, but I was talking to them about aliens. I said, well, has anyone talked about the Queen and how that works? And they all kind of look at each other going, don't mention the Queen in front of Ridley. <laughs> don't, do that. <laughs> don't do that. No, no, no. It's brilliant. Like, we just, you know, that's just, that's some weird aberration. That, you know, I think they, they kind of, in their own heads, they say, well, look, it kind of evolved, you know, from this oh. science in Alien Covenant, just something evolved into James Cameron's part of the world. And it actually, you know, you get the real difference between Ridley Scott and James Cameron in, in, in the ideas, in the sense that Scott wants something more impressionistic and more unconscious and fairy tale like you know, don't mm. be too precise. Cameron, the hard, you know, logic man, 
wants to explain the biology. You know, he studied marine biology and physics and all those things. And the, the engineer in him says, well, where are the eggs from? You know, something's giving us eggs. You know, where do they come from? And so he works it all out and, and scientifically it works. And that satisfies, I think, people a lot more sometimes than, than Ridley's more elusive, anything goes kind of principle at the edges of his film. Right. What, what was it like seeing Ridley sort of directing, you know, what was your impression of him on, on set? His sort of... That was fantastic. That's kind of a little bit where you get it. I watched it. It was kind of, I think the scene didn't finally make it in. It's a sort of an extension of a scene where David and Billy Crudup's character, Oram, I think it's called, are walking along a corridor. Yeah, a classic alien corridor, dripping water, one pale bulb of a light, you know, very atmospheric, you know, and... They're just sort of walking along, having this kind of rather sinister conversation about creation, God versus man, all those things that are in the film. And it's just one slice of that. And really was directing via PA. So it's, you know, he's talking to a microphone and conducting the whole thing. And, you know, they walk on, do the first scene. And, and you can see it wasn't quite right, though. Yeah, I couldn't figure out exactly what it was. I'm standing at a monitor. I'm not like mm. right there in front of pointing at things. I'm looking at the monitor going, well, it doesn't quite fit. And really stops and, and there's a pause. And you hear Billy's voice come through going, okay, Michael, Michael. And Michael's in character as David, you know, like mm. stiff. And he says, just step two paces to your left. Mm. Fast bend. That's exactly what he's told. It goes boom, boom, boom. There's another pause. And you see the frame just take shape. It's gone. There's a couple of other things he adjusted. Mm. And it really mm. was, and it's a cliche, you know, the painter with it, but his palette and his easel looking back and going, you know, the proportions are wrong. And it just took a tiny adjustment. Mm. And there was this balance in the shot. And I thought, this is what Ridley does, isn't it? He sees things. He sees the frame. I think other directors may have mapped all that out with storyboards and figured it out and got it wrong, maybe, a lot of them, mm. because they don't have that immediate ability to look and go, that isn't quite right. And he pulled that frame exactly into into to perfection in a way the balancing elements of it and the carried on it was just it was a very small part of the film but you saw how he did it and what he was doing he reminds me it reminds me of a, a comment once Stephen Sondheim made when he was saying at a certain point in his career he realized he he, could, he couldn't write a bad song you know he he he'd <laughs> mastered his craft to the point that no not every song he'll he'll write will be great but he would never write a bad song again yeah he just knew you know and I feel that Ridley Scott did that quite early in his career and although there are films that I sort of worry about, and as I say, they don't exactly work, none of them are, are sort of, even Prometheus, which I think is yeah. is very disappointing in comparison to Alien, is still, there's a hell of a lot there to enjoy. You know, there's a hell of a lot there to savour. And I, that that's my feeling with Ridley Scott. Well, I mean, there are several directors who are, who are that he'll, he'll never really make an, a truly awful film. He might not make a film to your taste or that you won't enjoy or whatever, but but it'll always be a, a level of competence. It's really a very high level. Oh, absolutely. He says it. He, he says it not with ego. He says it almost as a you know, practical thing. Says, well, I've got an eye and I know how it will look. I can make it look. I've got the eye. And that's true. And in fact, he probably has the best eye in the business at the moment. You, know, you can argue again about his narrative choices and some of the scripts and where he's gone with things. But that eye is, is, is astonishing and unbeatable. I mean, the two trailers we got this autumn just showed you that again. You know, the last jewel that looks like Kingdom of Heaven. It has that kind of um, austere but yet grand quality of a medieval world brought to life. And then Gucci has a kind of richness. And he does, he always says, um, 
one of his his subgenres are his thing, and people don't talk about it very much. Is he's uh, he comes from a humble working class background, north of England, Ridley Scott, and that's very much his character. He has that. You know, we don't show off quality to him, a very pragmatic kind of man, despite being this great artist. And I think he's fascinated by wealth and the, the kind of curdling quality of wealth. It crops up again and again in his films, these mansions and houses. You know. uh, and Gucci, I think, is very much part of that. He's sort of fascinated by class systems you know, within worlds. And Alien has a class system you know, built on the, uh, above decks and below decks. Blade Runner has these kind of penthouses where... The rich live, and then this kind of bottom level where life carries on, just about survives. Yeah, a lot of that comes from Metropolis, but he is you know, interested and fascinated by class, Ridley Scott, which I think to do with his background a bit, and to do with the fact that you know, he was transported from London sort of to Hollywood, and it was greatly successful. Suddenly went to these kind of living in these great palatial homes in, in LA, and obviously liking it and having a taste for it, but... Endlessly questioning it in his films. You know, Someone to Watch Over Me is about wealth. Black Rain has elements of that, the tier systems in, in Japan. And he's constantly revisiting that theme throughout throughout his work. It's, you know, he has a social side to, to his directing. We always think of him genre and look and, and you know, blockbustering, all those kind of things. But actually, I think he's a quite a socially orientated director. Yeah, he seems even in his well, his history films, you know, Robin Hood and, and uh, again, which didn't work completely. Actually, that's a question I did want to ask was, how do you, you know, you're writing a, a monograph, like a retrospective on, on Ridley Scott and you've done them on Wes Anderson and you've done them and we're, and we're definitely going to have another podcast episode to, to cover <laughs> to cover the other books because I don't want to shortchange any of them really. But as you say, your relationship with his directors might well be very supportive to one degree, but but there are films that just don't yeah. work for you. How how do you deal with that in terms of when you when you're putting the book together? It's it's a tricky thing uh, and it's a balancing act. Um, it was something going back to Empire that you know I had a, had a very good editor early on a guy called Phil Thomas and he said Empire needs to be inclusive, not exclusive. And he he never liked negatives on the cover. You don't you know the worst that put this or why this went wrong kind of cover. He said what we're doing is we're inviting people to come in to something and you're getting people into the cinema. You're not pushing them out of it. You know of course you got tell them when films are bad but the ethos is positive and that was quite unusual i think it remains quite unusual in film coverage to this day a lot of websites are all about why things have gone wrong and what's going you know i hate this you know why you know candy man is good why candy man is bad you know all these kind of elements and we were very much about we're all in this together we love movies let's hope this is as good as it can be every day we used to say in empire was christmas eve you know, because everything had the potential to be marvellous until you kind of saw it. You know, and that was where we lived. We lived in Christmas Eve on Empire. Uh, we were the, the greatest preview magazine that ever existed. It's like the bit uh, rushing to the cinema to see the trailers. We can't miss the trailers. Yeah. I want to watch the trailers. Oh, we, we were absolutely that. And and we had the element of, you know, you'd go, you know, after you'd seen the film, we were the guys in the pub with you afterwards going, well, yeah, but that and this, you know, and having those conversations. But I took that with me into books almost by instinct. Um, the, the element of you've got to be positive, but you've got to be honest as, as well. 
And yeah, things like Prometheus were, were, were kind of interesting because there was texture to write about that. But when you come to things like Exodus, which I don't like as, very much as a movie, it's got, I think the, the, the plague sequence is Ridley just virtuoso, but elsewhere, it, yeah, it just felt heavy and cumbersome, that, that film. And so you just have to kind of balance that. I mean, who wants to buy a book in which you tell them films are terrible? Yeah, there, there's a kind of a pragmatic publishing element. But thankfully, you know you've got your backbone of, of Alien, Blade Runner, Gladiator, you know, to be there for you, to, to bring people in. And then you can tell about Legend of the Duelist and all the other great ones. But you have to kind of confront the Jacks. You know, we talked about Coppola earlier on. You know, what you can talk about the Godfather and, and Apocalypse Now and the conversation and you're, you're kind of laughing. But what happens when you get to, to Jack? And with Coppola, it was slightly different because it's a bit more about his life as much as it was about the films and the marriage of those two things. So you could talk about Jack in relation to his his dead son and the fact that you know, he was trying to find a path in Hollywood that was successful again. He was trying to understand Hollywood again and, and the whole Robin Williams thing was very big at the time. And I think he, he was just contrarian as well. And he, he liked the idea of doing the polar opposite to Apocalypse Now and, and, and shocking people by doing that and paying off debts. You know, there's a long and complicated story to... Coppola's choices. Uh, and I think you try and make sense of that uh, you, you, in terms of the bad films. But I think there is a point, and I'm sure other writers have said so to you, you just got to call a spade a spade and go, this film doesn't work, and try and figure out why that is as much as you can. You know, I'm doing Cameron at the moment, and I'm, I've hit upon True Lies, and uh, I, I think True Lies has got fantastic stuff in it. You know, His orchestration of, of action sequences still... And to my mind, peerless. He, you know, he, he just can throw metal around like no one else can. But there's a tone in that film that, as much as I want to like it, I don't. It's just rather you know, it's sour. And it's an attempt at humour. And it always things, you know, having real trouble trying to get that on page you know, without just going, I, you know, I hate this film and I don't like it. And I, I don't hate it. But um, it's difficult. And in fact, you know, in some ways, the hardest films to write about are the, the ones that haven't gone well and make sense of that. But, you know, and there are people like David Thompson, you know, who, who just thrive on, on writing about films they don't like and saying what's wrong and picking it apart. And I have great admiration for that skill of going in and going, well, this doesn't work at all and being absolutely emphatic about it. I mean, I always love that comment of Thompson's about um, Harrison Ford and, and Blade Runner and just saying, well, you know, I would give up all three Indiana Jones films, just as it was at the time, for... for 30, you know, for half an hour of Blade Runner. So I would give them up if I can keep half an hour of Blade Runner. And just a part of me understands that. <laughs> you know, I love Indiana Jones, don't get me wrong. And I joyously experienced watching those films, growing up with them and would watch them this afternoon very easily. But I get that thing with David Thompson and I greatly admire that, that skill to, to, to nail it. He often, I think he said something like that criticism can be like the song of the blackbirds in, in film writing. Uh, you know, we, it's another modern thing is that we get caught cheerleading a little bit and a lot of that's to do with the hype machine being first and all those things that go on now with you know the internet and the way films are covered but it's yeah i get it you know sometimes great criticism is, is, is very valid yeah i mean i think there has to be i i one of my real because i'm generally speaking quite an enthusiast yeah. i tend i tend i i don't i don't you know protect my uh, five stars as if they're you know, a rare currency that lose value if spent. I, I, I'll throw them around with gay abandon when, 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 when I feel it, it's merited. But having said that, I do think in terms of fandoms, 
there is a tendency to to confuse something being good and having genuine quality, which I think you can argue about as if it is objective, not necessarily yeah. because it yeah. is objective, but as if it is. You can sort of talk about, look, well, it doesn't it doesn't follow the rules of the genre, or it does this, or it does that, and it doesn't do it in an interesting way. You can, you know, you it, it, the blocking of the scene is just wrong. You know, you, you can yeah, yeah. you can look at stuff like I mean, I look at Terence Manic films and just the more recent ones and just think it's fucking no blocking in this movie. Everybody's wandering around, they don't know where to stand, and it's and it doesn't have the ten, intended effect as far as i can as far as i can tell so there's a difference between that is it good and do i enjoy it you know there's yeah, loads of yeah. stuff that i enjoy that's absolute shit or uh, from a sort of quality that i mean i think there are very few james bond movies that really stand up as movies but i enjoy them you know i mean especially the roger moore years they're, yeah. they're not even films. They're just not even. They don't. <laughs> they don't obey. You know, they don't. They. They kind of. And and people. I, I. I was having an argument on the internet a few years ago with somebody who was talking about guilty pleasures. There's no such thing as guilty pleasures. If you enjoy it, you shouldn't feel guilty. And I'm like, yeah, you should. You should. There are some <laughs> guilty pleasures. There are sometimes that it feels good. I mean, I love eating. McDonald's every now and again, but I yeah, I know yeah. it's not good for me, and I should be, and 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 my awareness of that is part of the reason I enjoy it now and again, you know. So that that sort of like, yeah, I think that should there should really be a, an ability to yeah. to to distinguish between those two things, the pleasure that comes with just watching. You know, I love watching kung fu movies, but. Yeah there comes a certain point where you're just thinking this is, you know, as a movie, this is awful, but as a Kung Fu movie, this is great. Yeah. We used to have um, endless arguments in, in Empire, which I, I won for a while. We had something called Classic Back, which was basically a writer gets to revisit a classic and do an essay on it for Empire and do a lovely big picture to go with it. And it really was the, you know, as, we, as I saw it, it was the canon. Empire does the canon. You do Citizen Kane, you do Raging Bull, you do All About Eve, you know, you do the films that people should have seen. And open them up in an empire way, so it wasn't too kind of academic and, and, and fusty and all those things. And we have people like Chris Hewitt, who's a marvelous writer and an enthusiast, but maybe comes at things slightly more modern. Would go, I want to do Evil Dead too, and I would go, No. Every time it did, it just happened on a monthly basis. This argument, <laughs> go, What are we going to do for a classic this time? And, I, and he would go, Evil Dead too, and I would go, No, it's not a classic. You've got to understand what the canon is in relation to what your passions are. And I'm not doing down Evil Dead 2. It's a film I really greatly enjoy. And it's got wonderful, tricky things in it. But there's a certain thing that what the canon is. And I kept encouraging him to go and write about something maybe he, he was un, uncertain about, you know, a, a Hitchcock film or something. Uh, you know, go and do Vertigo. And, and he would be, oh, no, you know, and worry, worry about that. And But I wanted to make that distinction. You know, you can have that relativist argument and just fall down the old black hole and go, Mozart's as good as Bananarama, you know, and, you know, we're all going to be relativists about this. But you've got to have a canon because it, it gives you something to write about and gives you a kind of foundation. And, it's, you know, you've got to know why The Godfather is The Godfather and other films aren't The Godfather. And that is at the fundament of, of what good film criticism should be about, knowing the textures and finding them out and getting into them and appreciating them and then enjoying them and, and, and sort of loving that distinction and sort of emphasising it. Uh, you know, then subverting it, then kicking against it, then then arguing, you know... 
for the inclusion of stuff that hasn't previously been considered, but arguing in such a way that, that yeah, okay, let's consider Evil Dead 2 or let's okay. consider something, but we're, we're doing it on the, ter- on the basis, on the criteria of, of where is it pushing the art forward rather than did I like it a lot? You know, yeah. I mean, I love Elf. I'll watch that movie any day of the week, but yeah. I wouldn't necessarily, you know, hold it up as some sort of like innovative, you know, it's just a very enjoyable film. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, and you, you go back and go, well, where does Capra begin and Elf end? And where does Elf begin and Capra end? You know, you, you, know, you, you say these distinctions, you know, Capra was a, a, you know, a populist filmmaker who made films for, for, for you know, massive audiences who wanted to be cheered up. That's what Elf is. It's it's a film to cheer people up, and 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 it's you know it's a fish out of water comedy and all those kind of things. It does very well, and uh, and yeah, you're absolutely right. Those things are you know the, the best thing about rules is breaking them and finding reasons why the canon you know what enters the canon and 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 why it should now enter it. And but I always think if you have that backbone to work from, then all these things can sort of come into focus. You can compare. You know, you go back to Ridley. So you have Alien and Blade Runner. Uh, yeah, and you can then go well. You know, how does Prometheus relate to it, and you know, look to it, and and you can find the good. You can sort of from that and go well. You know, some are you know, I like quite like Tetro. You know, the late Coppola film. You know, it's it's a bit all over the place, but it's got wonderful, wonderful, very personal things in it, which is what Coppola is so good at. You know, the, the richness of family life. I don't think it's a director like him on, on that. And Tetro sort of revisits that. And, you know, it's a bit unsung. And, and doing the Coppola book, it was great to go to look at small Coppola and, and sort of discover that the artist is still there. Yeah, maybe he's a bit more ragged and, you know, less disciplined. He's always been a bit ragged and undisciplined in how he goes about things. I think, Christ, he made the apocalypse now. I think you're right. I think the canon exists anyway, whether you want it or not, because if it doesn't exist in terms of you talking about it on the pages of Empire or, or it exists in terms of your public publishers saying these books won't sell. We need to do yeah. we need to do this, this and this. It, it exists in terms of syllabi in universities. This is going to be the these are the films that we're going to look at because nobody and, and it exists in terms of the films that you'll watch during your life because you won't watch everything so you have yeah. to it's nice to know the sight and sound top 250 movies ever made just as a your or, or the imdb most popular movies if you want to watch shawshank redemption again it, it's nice to know that those things exist so you can sort of navigate and, and build your own canon because that's that's in the end that's what we end up doing you're right. Uh, yeah, the Beatles are the Beatles because they're the Beatles. You know, it's the and they're unshakable. I and mean, it's in some ways it's boring, but it's true. You know, Charlie Watts died this week, and I've just been reading. You know, I, I used to try, tried to be a drummer at one time in my life, so I was very kind of you know I knew about Charlie Watts, and, and I, you know, I was very sad. But I love reading all the drummers on Charlie Watts and talking about why he was so important. And it was drummers reinforcing a drumming canon. That's what I loved about it. You know, Charlie Watts is, you know, one of the most important drummers of all time. And they were sort of saying why. Uh, you know, it's a great piece by Stuart Copeland, the police, talking about, he goes, I'm going to get technical now, people. And starts talking about the way he played rhythms. And he, he softened his, his snare drum and emphasized the bass drum. And he said this gave it both sort of an imperative and something relaxed at the same time. And he says, that is the Rolling Stones music, driving forward, yet somehow it's relaxed. This is all comes from Charlie Watts's beat. I thought, that's what a fantastic sentence. Yeah, that's completely opened up my my, my th- thinking about the Rolling Stones and you know, how important Charlie Watts was. 
And that to me is, you know, what, what you're meant to be doing as a great writer, or you know, that's what I'm trying to do as a writer, is you're trying to tell them things that just open up these worlds. You know, come back to that, my old editor, you know, trying to get people to watch films, not the opposite. You know, we're going, actually, you know, although they're a bit archaic and maybe old-fashioned, you go back to some of the great film noirs of the, of the, the 40s and 50s, and these are the things that you, know, you look in them and just think how, you know, putting two people in a frame like this, you know, saves you time on set. You can do dialogue and have deep focus and all these kind of there were technical things at the time and just picking them out and showing them to people. My favourite film books open up the worlds of films I know and, and love and reinvent them for me. So, you know, that's you know, when I came to do Alien and Blade Runner, I had trepidation because they're so well known and they're so written about. What do you say? And new, what, what, how can you bring something that's, you know, so celebrated? But I had to kind of brush all that aside and go, right, well, give my own feelings for it and try and open it up. And try to try and get people back to it. If you're just telling them, you know, something they love, they'll 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 love you for it. You know, yeah, you know, we're sitting here having a conversation about films because we love doing it. You know, we could have a conversation about, I'm sure, about the Rolling Stones if you wanted, and just go, oh, that one, that one. This is part of how human beings sort of live. They they share their favorite things. Talking about canons, talking about uh, yeah. getting people to to into the cinema, getting people to read books. That's what we're all about. So um, you've got a recommendation for a, uh, your favorite film, or not your favorite film book? Sorry, just it's just yeah. a film book recommendation. Does it have to be favorite or the favorite? Always hard for me um, because I'll mention two, if, if I may. One um, is this. If you can see that, the conversation by Michael Ondaatje. Yeah, this is quite an unusual book in the sense that it's an interview by a novelist with an editor. But Walter Murch is an astonishing person. He basically made sense of Apocalypse Now. He was Coppola's editor and sound editor, and he's largely responsible for the beauty of Godfather Part Two and those incredible transitions. You know, a lot of that is Walter Murch. And he's the guy who got all the footage from Apocalypse Now when Coppola was basically going through a nervous breakdown and, you know, was locking himself away in his San Francisco office, refusing to come out. And it was Murch who this, this film fell back on. And Murch found a way through Apocalypse Now. He said, you know, he, he woke Coppola up at one point, said, we've got to have a voiceover. We've got to have these things. And, and a path was found. And out of it emerged, you know, one of the most significant films in the medium. But he's also, he's a, he's a wonderful intellectual. Yeah, he's a very unusual man in terms of the world of film because he, he intellectualizes naturally and is unashamed about it. So he will go down philosophical paths and technical paths and talk about art and talk about all sorts of different things and really, you know, bring the world of film to light. And there's a technical book. If you're going into filmmaking, I would say read this first because he, he talks about editing like no one else I've known, about the idea of following I can literally a spot within a frame. And the next frame you jump to, you're still following that. So you don't, you know, you, you start to realize what bad editing is, is that they don't have this kind of flow, this idea of where narrative exists within a frame. Where are you concentrating at any one time? And Ondaatje is, is a great guy. I mean, they made The English Patient together with, with Antti Minghella. Ondaatje was the novel and he was heavily involved in the film and Merch was the editor. And so they talk about The English Patient a lot, but it's got incredible stories about The Godfather, incredible stories about Apocalypse Now, uh, incredible stories about Return to Oz, which is Walter Merch's only film as a director, in which he had a very bad time. It's quite an interesting film. It's, you know, it's a very dark film. And, he, and it's, it's, it's very good on that. And there's lovely little pieces from people like George Lucas and Coppola himself about Merch is brilliant. I think it's just as a, a way of opening up the frame for you. You've got an incredible guide in Walter Merch, and he's he's an unusual 
guy. You know, he's a guy who, who edits. So he watches more footage than anyone else. You know, he sees endless takes and he looks at it. And so he's, he's right at the very root of, of the film narrative and has to kind of turn chaos into, into story. And you really appreciate that process in film. It's called City of Nets uh, by Otto Friedrich. And this is a history of Hollywood in the 1940s. Now, this book was the inspiration for Barton Fink. This was the key book that the Coen brothers read to pull out Barton Fink from. And he's a terrific writer. He's, he died in the, the 1980s, Otto Friedrich. And it's a story of Hollywood and done in this incredible, one sort of vivid, fast-paced journalistic way. He used to be a newspaper editor. Has a great speed. To, he delivers stories. And really, it's a story of America in the 1940s the changing country coming out of the depression, the second world war. And then, you know, the political scene from there. And he talks about gangsters and he talks about, he's a great gossip, but the, the backbone is just this incredible vivid, you know, the life of Hollywood during the 1940s when it was this most Hollywood, if you want, the kind of golden era times, Orson Welles, you know, all the, the, the kind of John Houston, Hawks, you know, all the great characters of that world. Yeah, I, I was greatly inspired by his methodology. I was greatly inspired by his ability to condense huge productions into two paragraphs, and you kind of get it, because he gets the essence of things. And that's a great, a great talent to have. You know, yeah, in writing books, as I was saying earlier on, you know, you, you've got to take all of Apocalypse Now and put it into a chapter, you know, and this is a, a story that's, you know, still getting bigger and bigger. I think mean, it's untamable. I had to turn to Otto Friedrich, who's writing about a completely different world, and look to him and go, yes, that's that's kind of what you do. You, you kind of you chart around certain things, anecdotes. I always realise that uh, there's always a great danger in film books in making them too listy or making them too... Uh, you know, too chronological, you know, ticking things off a list. There are very good books written like that, you know, encyclopedic style. But to me, and this is sort of my journalistic training, the anecdote, the human story is the most beautiful constituent part of any film book. You put them there, you know, the reader. You know, humans relate to other humans. They're not going to relate to too much technical stuff or too much detail or too many lists. And this happened and this happened. It's a great traps you can fall into. Stop and do one good anecdote. We we did a yeah. review of Quentin Tarantino's novelization of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and that that novel is just anecdote after anecdote, yeah. and all of them you can tell have some basis in in some real figure or some real event. Oh, yeah, I mean Tarantino was an artist of the anecdote. He just to break down his scripts, just people talking about other people in anecdotal form. But and that's how again it's a human way of interacting. It's telling stories, and and that's what you're trying to do. Um, so you try, you know, other people tell whether I succeed or not, but you try and bring in that novelistic thing, which I think Otto Friedrich taught me, is that you start a story with an anecdote. It's much better than starting on, you know, March the 7th, 1942, X, you know, directed Y, and which is fine. You'll bring that stuff into it. But if you start with, you know, it was the day her makeup went wrong on set and she screamed her head off and you start with something, you know. Um, yeah, it's also written a, a wonderful book about Berlin and Berlin in the 1920s and the 1930s. Fabulous book about 
German Expressionism and Bauhaus and Brecht and incredible you know, time in Berlin. He just did this a bit where he talks about uh, Marlena Dietrich's audition with von Sternberg for The Blue Angel. And it's just magisterial film writing. It's just, you know, how haughty she was, how terrifying she was. And Sternberg making her walk up and down. And Jannings, the star, just wants nothing to do with her. Who is this? No mark, you know. But Sternberg can see the greatest star in the world coming into being and you can just see it and it's just i thought god yeah that's what you want to get at you know you want to get at that you know you, again he does it in about a page you achieve you know the story of marlena dietrich and you know and how she came to be it's just, immediately you, know, you want to go and watch blue angel as well absolutely and you get everything and you also you get which i think is a really great quality that idea of what's going on around them in, in the universe that's leaning in so City of Nets is a great story about LA and the LA of that time and, and what's going on, and, you know, the rise of communism and you know, that, you know, and Huac is just around the corner. So those two forces, in fact, it sort of starts with the end of depression and sort of ends as Huac comes in. So there's a kind of sense of doom written into it, mm. which is also written to his great book about Berlin, which sort of starts with Caligari and, and Murnau and the end of the First World War and ends with the Nazis. You know, it ends with Goebbels and, and Hitler. And it's like a ticking bomb story. You know it's coming. And you're just kind of living, reading it, thinking, oh, shit, just around the corner. It's just going to blow all this apart. And you know, that's, that dynamic is wonderful. God damn it, Ian. God damn it. That's another two books I've got to read. Another two books I've... Uh, this podcast is costing me a fortune. <laughs> I bet it is. Everyone going, you got to read this. Yeah. I know, yeah. and they're all such compelling... I mean, that sounds brilliant. Those two... I mean, I know Michael Ondaatje because I've read all of his novels, I think. Yeah. Um, you know, I read... I loved his Billy the Kid. Uh, if, if, if you have the opportunity to read his Billy the Kid book, which is kind of like a novel a mix between novel and poetry really it's very it's, it's really really good but yeah those are two great great book re recommendations i'm definitely putting them on my list thanks so much for talking to me ian it's been an absolute pleasure and i uh if, and if you're willing i will definitely have you back and definitely. we can talk about coppola and we can talk about some other books uh as, as and when and cameron you know yes cameron's yeah. gonna be i'm writing it now i'm wrestling with it now and that's due next autumn it's kind of the weirds you know glacial time things you work on with book i've just recorded my christmas number one single just now and uh you know <laughs> <laughs> in the heat of an italian summer but thanks so much ian it's i really appreciate cheers. it all right cheers mate so that was our conversation. Uh, as you can tell, we talked about loads of stuff. It was a really interesting deep dive into Ridley Scott and to hear someone who's been on the set and interviewed Sir Ridley Scott extensively. By the way, since I recorded that episode, I got an opportunity to watch The Last Duel, which I thought was stunning. I thought it was one of Ridley Scott's best films in recent years. I would go so far as to say it's maybe his best since Gladiator, maybe even his best since Thelma and Louise. The recommended books Ian Gaithbers, both of which I've now bought, you'll be glad to know, uh, Michael Ondaatje's The Conversation with Walter Murch, and Otto Friedrich's City of Nets. And um, I've already started the conversation, and it's as interesting, fascinating as you can imagine. Thanks go to uh, Elliot Atkins for the music, as ever, and to Ali Harwood for supplying the artwork. Until the next episode, please take care. Thank you.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.